In a world where three pudgy history teachers discuss random aspects of history. I've got nothing. No, Hatfield, we got you. Yeah, I, wait, who you calling pudgy? Yeah, man, that's kind of rude. No, I'm rude. Hatfield's heart's on fire, Elvira. That's right, folks. It's History Bros time, and they've been messing with me prior to recording, so therefore I'm going to mess with Hatfield and eventually Geldmacher later on. Welcome in all of our friends to the History Bros podcast with the far right leaning to the on the country. Jason Hatfield, and the man who dwells beneath me, Brian Geldmacher, known hey. as Nascorn and Karn, or something like that dirty. Oh. NASCAR and dirty, I believe. Anyway, uh, how you two doing uh, there, you creepers? I'm so confused. <laughs> oh, we're creepers. All I'm going to say is these two I'm guys great. have been sitting here before we went on air, searching <laughs> out where I live, like a couple of creepers. <laughs> and I don't get it. I mean, I'm just I'm exposing them for what they are here. They're and on I'm Google sorry. Maps, I, looking I, this I, stuff I up, like, describing my neighborhood I, to me as if I'm not supposed to know where I live or I don't know. I feel like, but I feel I like feel I need like to go to the FBI. Has been flipped here for some reason. I feel like I, I been reversed. I think the terminology you're looking for is uh, is the old switcheroo. Yes, as, if, as if the roles haven't been reversed somehow. <laughs> This is ridiculous. All I'm saying is you two are, are are just really creepy, and I don't know if I'm very comfortable with it right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Are we, are, are we doing this? We're letting it all out, or are we just going to move on? <laughs> no, we're good. I just wanted to give you a hard time. You, yeah, you guys I'd are, buy oh. that for a dollar. <laughs> no. The, the well, whole I, just, <laughs> well, I do want to say, though, um, some a uh, couple good things uh, happened this week. Um, a few... Uh, some episodes ago, I had talked about applying to the uh, USS Arizona Relics program. I found out earlier this week that my school was accepted to be a steward of a relic of the USS Arizona. And congratulations. That is fantastic. That's I'm very, very stoked. Um, they now had get contacted us, us. Do what? I said, now get us ours. <laughs> well, I sent you guys the uh, application process. I never saw you did. I sent you pictures of it. Yeah. So, but um, I went ahead and uh, uh, they contacted us and they're saying, now we just need to know about what uh, size of the relic that you were looking for, because they said, if it's going into more than a few feet, then it needs to be crated. And I was, I was thinking, what, what kind of places? I mean, there's, I mean, this is a middle school. I don't know what they would be expecting us to have, but. So um, we have um, a couple places that we're going to have it um, uh, on display uh, where students have regular viewing access to that. Um, That's awesome. we're, um, so, yeah, so we're just in the process of trying to talk with them about which, um, which specimens that they've got that they can send. And then 
Uh, I'm not sure how much it's going to cost. We'll, I think we have to pay for the shipping charges and all that kind of stuff, which, I mean, whatever. You know, if I have to do GoFundMe, then I'll do that. But um, so, yeah, so that was that was a huge thing. I'm very excited about that. Yeah, um, cool. And when I came home, uh, I had also received a my signed copy of Michael Palin's uh, journals of his experience as a Monty Python. That's almost just as cool. Almost, <laughs> almost. But um, and so what I one of the things going back to the USS Arizona is I was watching a documentary um, where they uh, sent uh, unmanned because you can't they're talking about the the uh, restoration uh, upkeep of the USS Arizona and um, you can't have divers go into it for various reasons. One, you could probably get caught the structural integrity um is you know obviously not up to snuff but um also it's you know it's a graveyard you know people died there and um so they were sending uh unmanned you know recording you know like cameras and vehicles and stuff in there to kind of map out how bad it is because they don't have really any photographic evidence of what it looks like on the inside and they were able to go down to the i think it was the second or third deck where there's very little oxygen and so the Mm -hmm the amount of um, material that's still there. I mean, they still have like, you know, soap dishes and stuff that are there, but um, they turned a corner and Donald Stratton, who we were talking about was one of the main individuals that they were talking to uh, who had just passed away this past weekend. But um, one of the things that was haunting is they find an entire suit still on a hanger hanging uh below deck and of course obviously the suit is um it's it's like an orange weird color because of the i'm sure the iron um content in the water but to sit there and have that still on a hanger downstairs and it's been there for 75 years or whatnot that's just that's it's crazy that's yeah that's great that's wild that's wild but um, it's on uh, Amazon streaming right now, uh, Amazon Prime. Um, hmm. So uh, it's called Inside the USS Arizona. So uh, check it out. It's about an hour long. It's not it's, um, pretty cool. interesting. Nice. Um, but t- today's also kind of interesting, kind of. It's also exciting because mm-hmm. we have a guest on mm-hmm. today as well. Indeed we do. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, a friend of mine from college, Roger Justice, um, the uh, contest winner. So uh, it'll be uh, nice to hear what he has to say. What'd you guys think of my announcement? Okay, oh, that, that that says enough. <laughs> what, what? Oh, you talking about your video? Yeah. First oh. of all, I'm happy that you did it. <laughs> I, I, I'm happy that you did it live. I tried. Um, I tried to do it live. I believe. Yeah, it. You know, it worked. For what it was, I mean, it it worked. It's the definitely the first time we've had a, an announcement made on the back of a <laughs> McDonald's receipt. <laughs> so um, that just kind of shows you the budget that we have here at the History yeah, Bro. Anything speaks to just exactly how things work. That that, that gives you an idea. Yeah. I yeah, completely. <laughs> so I knew. I remembered it during the day, during the school day, and I'm like, I got to get that done. I got to get that done. 
And then I left, and I completely forgot, and I was so disheveled because I forgot to do the stuff that I needed to do to be prepared for the basketball game I was supposed to call. And it's not like this is just like, oh, whatever, it's just another basketball game. This is a state playoff game between two very good teams. Um, and, yeah. And I show was up this, there. What's that? Was this basketball game, was that uh, just down the road from the Bamboo restaurant? No, this <laughs> is out of town. Restaurant? No. Okay. Oh, it's you, out of town. Okay. If you can find Stolen Brothers... <laughs> You'll know where it is. <laughs> oh, Hatfield, just remember, I don't forget this stuff, and I will come back. Oh, no. <laughs> You've already demonstrated your ability to hone in on, you know, where I live. So <laughs> you if I if I can just go ahead and throw this out here that I received a letter from you. No, that, so, um... that's not what the return address said. That's not what the return address said. With yeah. with my return address. <laughs> so Let's not yeah. forget. Yeah, Geldmacher and I are the creepy ones. So yeah, that, that's what this is. I didn't bring it up. <laughs> so oh. uh, this week in history. Hang Moving on. Along. I, I wasn't done with you yet. No, go ahead. All right. Um <laughs> this week oh, am I first on this this time? Yes, what? you are first. Oh, okay. Oh, this is uh birthday. Mm-hmm. What? JR, February 19th, birthday. February 19th oh, no. of. Must be 1473 because apparently he didn't put a year in there. Whoever put this in there, not that it was. It's February 19th. If it's his birthday, why would it be in like. Ni- You've got the date, February 19th. <laughs> obviously. 1473 was when he was born. <laughs> do we not know how to do this? Well, you're halfway there. You want to finish it or no? No, no. It's, it, it says JR. You read that part too. So let's go ahead and go. <laughs> oh, it hurts. Oh, it hurts. Oh, my God. I had spent the last four days coughing, sneezing, puking. <laughs> Everything. I've been so sick. And this is, today's the first day I feel decent, except I've got sore ribs from all that. And every time I laugh, <laughs> it hurts so bad. <laughs> so, oh. by the way, when you have a name with two years in, per, in parentheses behind it, that's birth and death dates. So, um, welcome to the world of history. Now let's continue, please. I'm trying. <laughs> on February 19th, 1493. God bless America. <laughs> Astronomer Nicholas Copernicus was born in Torin, Poland, considered the founder of American modern astronomy. American astronomy. <laughs> modern astronomy. <laughs> he theorized that the sun, not the earth, was the center of the solar system. Oh, what a heretic. Oh, my God. Ah, <laughs> uh, Copernicus, founder of American <laughs> astronomy. <laughs> What's funny is he, he says, was born in Poland, considered the founder of American astronomy. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what we call sight reading, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. On uh, February 23rd, uh, 1836, Mexican General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana's forces laid siege to the Alamo. That in wasn't San very Antonio. Nice. Did you guys? Re- what? Did you guys remember the Alamo today? I did not. I did. I did remember the Alamo. I did. Until just now. Now I remember it. 
Well, that was, um, that's I was, uh, my wife and I were watching a CBS Sunday morning and they had a whole segment, uh, not only about that, but they talked about how many historians, uh, regard the decision to stand and fight, um, a reckless one. Um, and actually, uh, the Texican, the Texican, Texan, uh, <laughs> I, I, I've got, I've got Rude's disease today. <laughs> Um, the Texan commander, Sam Houston, actually did not want them to um, stand and fight. But uh, still, uh, according to CBS Sunday Morning, in 2018, the Texas State Board of Education rejected calls from educators and historians who wanted to change school textbooks, which referred to the Alamo defenders as heroic. Hmm. So, um, again, you know, and uh, with the passage of history and new information, people think that certain things should be changed. And that happens to be uh, to be one of them. Do you consider them to be heroic or do you consider them to be? I mean, even though you made the decision to go against your apparent orders, making the decision to stay and fight for a cause that you believe in, wouldn't that still be considered something that would be heroic, regardless of, I mean, we... I guess it would depend on whether you won or not. Well, maybe. Is it heroic to stand in front of the atomic bomb saying, I'll shield everybody, and then get vaporized? Even though clearly it's a terrible idea? Right. I mean, you there was, there are some who would call it stupid. There were some who would say, well, he chose to make a stand I, you know it could go either way i could see it okay let's just yeah, say whilst people while most people would think well what an idiot um I think, you know i'm sure there's a small segment that would say wow that guy you know really decided to make a point i think it's safe to say that there's legitimate arguments on both sides of this and we can sure. see both both angles yeah all right we'll go with that there you go yeah, there it is. Gelsey. So I don't know how to read this one because it says birthday. I don't know, understand. I don't oh, know. Oh, but he put the year in this one. <laughs> don't worry. He put the year. By the way, if anyone's wondering, Jason Hatfield's the one who put this together. You'll this love week. reading about this. You'll love reading about this guy because apparently he's Polish. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me try this. Uh, okay. okay. BG, February 23rd, 1868. <laughs> uh, no, um, African American educator and leader, W.E.B. Dubois. 1868 to 1963, was born in Great Barentine, Massachusetts. Nice. There you go. Had a very interesting book called The Souls of Black Folk, where he tried to uh, encourage African Americans to become more politically motivated. Um, else, what shall save us from a second slavery? As mm. he said. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> rude? You've got to be kidding me. You, uh, you would put this in there for me. <laughs> I, was just, I just put them in, and then I just was putting people's names on them. I didn't I didn't do anything specific. Go ahead. Right. <laughs> February 20th of 1939, six and a half months before Adolf Hitler invaded Poland, New York City's Madison, Madison Square Garden. Ma oh, good Lord. Go ahead, sorry. <laughs> Hosted a rally to celebrate the rise of Nazism in Germany. Inside, more than 20,000 attendees raised Nazi salutes towards 
a 30-foot-tall portrait of George Washington flanked by swastikas. Outside, police and some 100,000 protesters had gathered in the shape of a swastika. <laughs> Jeez. And someone said this would be a good layout for an airport. <laughs> like I said, there's no reason why you put that one in there at all. I mean, <laughs> 20,000 attendees in Madison Square Garden that's, having a, uh, a pro-Nazi rally in 1930 in front of a huge portrait of George Washington. That's just were there were there, were there pictures of, of the swastikas there? You're sure they look like swastikas this time? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. You, you'd have to tell me. Well, I, I just, I'm, I'm just trying to, to, to make sure because you know the other times we gave you evidence, you didn't like that. Oh boy! No, oh, here we go again. Would we call that evidence? I guess is the, the real question. I'm looking at. I don't see the swastikas. I see George oh, did Washington. You, you looked it up. I'm looking at it right now. Oh, oh there they are. I Never mind. It. You're right. They're there. Oh wait, <laughs> except they're missing one leg. Kind of like, <laughs> kind of like Dulles Airport. Here we go. <laughs> on February nineteenth, this episode of what doesn't look like. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of the history bros, we should say it's just to change the name to this doesn't look like a swastika. <laughs> it's just a segment. <laughs> February 19th, 1942, the internment of Japanese Americans began after President Franklin Roosevelt issued Executive Order 9066, requiring those living on the Pacific Coast to report for relocation. Um, they were dispersed. There's a good uh, uh, documentary called uh, Time of Fear that discusses two of them that were in uh, Arkansas. And um, one of the people interviewed was uh, George Takei, whose family um, was interned oh, yeah. uh, at those camps. And they uh, basically 9066, they were so nervous after um, the attack on Pearl Harbor, they figured that the Japanese were going to attack the West Coast. And so they basically created military zones that they could then exclude people, whoever that they wanted. And in this particular case, obviously, they're going to exclude anyone that looks Japanese um, um, in that area. And so they basically had to um, get they could only take one or two bags um, with them to the relocation. Everything else, they said that the U.S. government would assist in the sale or storage of those things. So we're talking like you know, businesses were sold, farm equipment was sold. They were trying to get rid of everything that they could because they had no idea when, if, or mm. if they were going to be back. And so they would be uh, basically put in these internment camps, which of course would lead to the, um, is it the 447th? The, yep. um, Correct. the regimental combat team. Yes. Uh, where you had two, you had the Hawaiian Japanese Americans who were not forced to be removed. Mm -hmm. and um the uh, the mainlanders and the hawaiians actually the hawaiian the in this unit they uh the mainlanders considered the hawaiians very say um effeminate dandy types and the hawaiian japanese americans thought the mainlanders were kind of oafish and stupid and so there was like this kind of rivalry between those two and actually the i think the mainlanders 
No, was it the no 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 the ones from Hawaii called the mainlanders katonks, mm. which was uh, which basically was the sound that they felt would be made if you hit them and they hit the floor. It was katonk. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um, so yeah, and once they found out, you know, hey, these guys, despite the fact that they were interned in these camps, they signed up to fight for the United States during World War II. You know, it really changed the, their whole uh, outlook towards each other because that's one of the things that I pose to the students when we talk about it is like, how would you sign up to fight for a country that has taken away a lot of your civil rights? Mm. Um, I mean, it's a really it's a it's a it's a fascinating story. Yeah. And a little told one and a lot of Americans don't understand that yeah, as much as absolutely. Hitler was doing what he was doing with the Holocaust. In a lot of ways, we were doing very similar things here out of fear yeah we didn't i mean there were no obviously slaughtering of the japanese americans but uh right. but yeah but the definitely camps were basically the same way so right restricting their right definitely restricting rights of people right yeah. all right gelmacher uh today the anniversary uh 1945 during the battle of iwo jima six marines planted the u.s flag at the summit of mount suribachi the scene was photographed by journalist Joe Rosenthal of the, of the Associated Press, and his image soon becomes famous around the world. Uh, what many people do not know is that this iconic photo actually shows the second flag to be raised on Iwo Jima that day. The original flag was considered too small to be easily seen from the northern side of Suribachi, so the Marines searched for a replacement. And according to historian Robert E. Allen's book, The First Battalion of the 28th Marines on Iwo Jima, the flag shown in the famous photograph was delivered by tank landing ship USS LST-779 and measured 56 inches by 96 inches, which is markedly larger than the first flag. Do you know where that flag is now? I do not. I do. You can I've, tell us, though. I've seen it. How about you, Hatfield? It's closer to you than it is to either of us. I would imagine maybe the Smithsonian. Yeah, It's a good guess, but no, it's actually at the Marine Corps Museum in Quantico, Virginia. Oh, oh I've been there. It's outstanding, um, isn't I, it? It's the actually the design of the uh, the museum is supposed to symbolize the raising of that flag. Indeed, really? Yes, it is. Yeah, cool. it is so, one, one of the top ten museums I've ever been to. You got to get there, Gildy. You'll love it. Nice. I don't. I don't know if I saw the Iwo Jima flag there. A friend of mine who um, is in the Marine Corps. Um, he had taken me to it one day, uh, and we were uh, we walked around and stuff like that. They had a, a beam, a cross beam from the, the World Trade Center, mm -hmm. uh, there as well. The um, but I don't think I knew that that flag was oh. there. So, I could totally see that. I'm just looking at the design, yeah, yeah, I totally see it. Yep. The, the first time I was there, I didn't see it either. And uh, the kids are like, Yeah, we saw the flag. I'm like, What? And so, this <laughs> last time I was there, this last, this last year was the second time I was there, and I made sure I found it this, this last time. And uh, cool. I've, got, I've got a picture of it. it. It's pretty cool. There, there is a uh, a statue that's outside of that. Oh yeah, which um, is not in. I think it's it's generated some controversy, if I'm correct, because the statue is not a Marine Corps uniform. That could I think be it's Army. I think. But it's that one of the, like their. I forget the name of the guy, but it's like one of their big time heroes, isn't it? Yeah, Park. but I think they have them in the wrong type of uniform. I think whoever designed it. I'm not sure. I need to double check it in that. But okay. Hey, I'm up, aren't I? Yes. Yep. 
Well, before we do that, um, of course, that flag, I mean, and Flags of Our Fathers does a decent job of telling this story, uh, both the book and the, um, the movie. But, of course, the guy who is behind that book and movie has been questioned whether or not he was actually involved in it. You guys heard about that? Mm-mm. Really? Um, Mm-mm. I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah, the I'm general, not sure I'm the guy, the story. The guy for, who was from Wisconsin... The, who is uh, not Bradford, Brad, Bradley is his name. He was mm-hmm. the one whose son put the story together. And now there's questions on whether or not his dad was really the oh, one wow. as part of that. I think um, it's been interesting to, to, to take a look at here over the last couple of years. All right, January 21st of eight, uh, 1965, former black Muslim leader Malcolm X was shot and killed while delivering a speech in a ballroom in New York City. Not good. Nope. Malcolm X, obviously, along with Martin Luther King Jr., probably two of the biggest uh, names in the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is... I think there's... Go ahead. Go ahead. And unfortunately, this is the demise for most of the leaders of that era. Yeah, they um they there was some discrepancy or some uh, claims as to who it was that actually did kill Malcolm X because um mm-hmm. it's believed that members of the Nation of Islam had done it, um, but other people say that that's not necessarily the case. But right. Um, all right. Uh, let's see. I'm up. So February 21st, 1994, CIA agent Aldrich Ames was arrested on charges. He spied for the Soviet Union from 1985 to 1991. I remember when that came, when that news broke, that was like astonishing because it was like, there was, I mean, it showed, I mean, cause they wound up making like a couple of TV movies and whatnot about it. Cause it was so earth shattering. Cause you always hear about Russians that are spying for us, but you know, at that point, rarely right. were you thinking would an American like turn on, you know, well, of course there would be, but, um, and this right. is brought home that that had actually happened. So. Is this what sparked your interest to finally become a member of the cast of Homeland? <laughs> Um, no, no, oh, that, would no. A, that would be a, uh, no. Was that would be a paycheck that sparked his interest? <laughs> That's actually what I'm going to say, but I figured that would be kind of, uh, on the nose. That would diminish my, um, my pride in having taken part in that series, though. So. so sorry to shoot that down. My, my bad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hey, listen, go. listen. All I'm saying is I have reached out to Homeland to get Pittman back for one more episode, baby. Pittman. We Ooh, want Pittman. Hashtag, we want Pittman. I, That's I right. Have, I have a feeling that uh, they've already filmed all those episodes. So Does not matter. Can, I don't care. Uh, I don't want to hear whatever. it. I want Pittman. They can, they can film it with, and figure it out later. I don't care. I want Pittman for one more episode. <laughs> Yeah, with uh, with all the digital stuff, you figure that they can, you know, they can put me in. So yeah. exactly. Sure. See, uh, and I really think the the pot the plot of the closing episode, like the the series finale, should be Pittman coming back out in the last five minutes and going, "Whoa, it was me all along." That would be like right. some pro wrestling stuff, man. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> 
Pittman will just Pittman will just show up and just go. There you go. And then does a leg <laughs> drop on the CIA building, but it, he forgets it's a building, so he's gonna have a sore butt after that. To be the cryptographer, you gotta beat the cryptographer. Woo! Wow! And, and then, then wow. they level it with what? A drone? They're not all gems. Nope, <laughs> they are not. You're correct. Um, I have question on the placement of this next one because if I'm not mistaken, we go chronological, and this one is a little bit out of space. I don't know. Haha, <laughs> Gelbach. saying. Or, or that I I found this, and uh, as soon as I put everything in order, and I don't know much about this particular individual, so I just thought it was interesting. So I just okay. In well, we'll read it anyway. Let's uh, February seventeenth, nineteen oh nine. Apache Chief Geronimo died died while in captivity at Fort Sill. Oklahoma. He had led a small group of warriors on raids throughout Arizona and New Mexico. Uh, he was caught once and had escaped. Uh, the U.S. Army then sent 5,000 men to recapture him. So there you go. I know very little about Geronimo. I know that if you so. jump out of an airplane, you're supposed to say, Geronimo! I don't know why that is. That's the thing. I don't, I don't... Strange. That's I don't know. Yeah. Geronimo was a mighty warrior. I know that much. He fought hard. Um, I I don't know a whole lot beyond that. I've read about him, but I just don't remember it as the problem. He was an Apache. Yeah. And now there's an Apache yep. helicopter. That's yep. true. That's true. Yeah. And it's that I can <laughs> affirm is not shaped like a swastika. Yep. Yep. Yeah. As I'm oh, doing, you know what? I know, I know. Uh, I was actually he was um, the first time he was captured. He was held in Florida in two locations. I've actually been to one of the locations in Florida where they held him. Really? It's uh, it's a fort near Pensacola. Yeah. Oh, nice. I, yeah, there you go. As I'm doing uh, research on that statue of uh, Iron Mike. Iron Mike. That's what I'm trying to think of. To. Um, it, I'm not seeing anything that says that it was, uh, that he's wearing the wrong outfit. So maybe no, I would... he's, a, he's a boxer. So I don't know why they would even have a, <laughs> have a statue of him outside saw, of a Marine Museum. That doesn't make any sense. I saw a picture of him, uh, a, a meme or whatever that he's in a boxing he's a boxing ring. And it says that he's about ready to square off against his greatest opponent yet. And it's the letter S. <laughs> yeah, I know what you're talking about. What you're talking about? Do what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. He talks like my daughter. <laughs> oh, that's not nice. Now, hey, I do have to ask you something though. How do you think the unthinkable with an iceberg? Oh no. Jeez. <sighs> wow yeah that's right wow. yeah wow that's, wow wow yeah that's uh that's some uh yeah it's a lot of wow and after <laughs> chuck norris went to the virgin islands they no longer were oh. <laughs> oh god okay so um i say we uh this is a good opportunity for us to uh <laughs> to take a break and yes, uh I think we got Geldmacher pretty good on that one. We, no, I figure we can, we can continue this after um, when we come back. All right. Yes, yeah. yeah. yeah, please. 
please. <laughs> See, you're not consistent. You're not consistent. <laughs> you're right. I, I dropped the ball on that one. I'm sorry. You did. Listen here, you guys. We're going to break now, <laughs> so we're going to have to do that so we can take a piss if we need to or a, uh, oh a drink. Oh, my gosh. Jeez. What? <laughs> what? We're the History Bros. On, Jesus. Uh, we'll be right back. Talk to you soon. Welcome back to the History Bros. As we bring in our new guest, a bro for a day. <laughs> Something else. Because I can't think of anything beyond that. It is now time for Jason Hatfield to do the rest of the introduction. Um, I don't know what that was, but um, I, I feel moved. I feel my soul has been healed in in mm. some capacity. Um, as as we um, those of you who follow us on uh, social media may um, may know, we had another uh, contest uh, this past week in which uh, another listener was pulled from a toboggan. <laughs> a toboggan, um, which happened to be the uh, the back of a McDonald's receipt. And oh, if anyone ever needed to right. know what kind of planning and effort goes into this podcast, <laughs> there you go. But um, and the winner for this particular one uh, is a gentleman in name only by the name of Roger Justice. Oh, jeez. Shots I'm fired already? Because I know it's not going to go any better for me during this whole thing. Well, it sounds well, like you I deserve have it. I to say, do what? It sounds like you deserve it. <laughs> well, I will neither confirm nor deny mm. said uh, deservation. deservation. Okay, so. Um, what word was your that? Uh, it's it's uh, it's 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 Latin. You wouldn't you wouldn't get it. You wouldn't. Oh yeah, right. Um, oh yes, because we so we're Greek. Um, Roger. <laughs> I met Roger years and years ago um, at Western Carolina University. Um, this is and this is kind of the strange thing is that I had gotten a uh, a letter from the Wesley Foundation, which is the Methodist Student Center on campus. And they had um, invited me to come down um, because I was a freshman. And I don't remember getting ones from any other place. And I don't know how they got my name, but maybe maybe they sent them out just to all the freshmen. I'm not entirely certain. So um, I wound up going down there and I would spend basically a majority of my time either in the theater department or at the Wesley Foundation during my years there. And I met Roger and Roger um, has been uh, I will plainly state that Roger was a huge uh, impact on my life in wanting to learn more about history because of his ability not only to make it relatable, but to make it interesting and also to make it tangible. Um, huh. He was um, he had been um, at Western Carolina for about 18 years prior to my going there. No, I'm just trying to get what I can in. Now, how long had you been there, Roger? So I got there in 1985, and I can't remember what year you got there. I yeah, I was there in the fall of 91. Yeah, so I'd finished my first degree by that point and was working on number two. 
That's so. the well, there you go. Yes. No. Um, so anyway, so um, Roger and I became friends during that. And I never really um, at that point, there was no intention for me ever um, that I had not considered being a, a history teacher at that particular point. But uh, Roger was always um, he was the, the, the man who taught me how to make goulash. Mm. which is uh which is a dish i still make and uh is one of my favorites to make um he was he was sort of the culinary legend at the uh wesley foundation and um so anyway uh but roger welcome to the show thank you it's a pleasure to be on this high quality podcast this morning so oh or, or podcast wow. whatever it is podcast, the podcast, is. podcast either, yes. either one doesn't matter yeah, I mean tomato, tomato, tomato. which Let's which go. does not work in text, by the way. I've it doesn't. That. <laughs> That's correct. It doesn't. <laughs> but but um, so anyway, so Roger, tell us about your um, historical your interest in in history. What was your um, what was your uh, your pathway through this? Well, I think I I came to it really early. I, I was blessed in a lot of ways. Uh, my father is twenty years older than my mom, and uh, he was a World War II veteran. And then my mother's father was also a World War II veteran. And uh, my dad oh, wow. served in the Pacific with the United States Navy, um, was an enlisted man on a several different ships. And I think we'll talk about that in a minute. But my uh, grandfather was a uh, officer in the Second Cavalry, um, served in Europe, uh, landed shortly after D-Day, and then went with um, Patton's Third Army mostly all the way to the end of the war and was one of two officers to survive without being killed or wounded. Um, so... I got a lot of stories very early. Um, I can remember mm. as a uh, kid, five-year-old, six-year-old, my uh, teacher's name was Mrs. Henderson, and I thought that's who um, the field at Henderson Field, her husband was who the the uh, field was named after during the war, even though she was much more younger. Yeah, so, um, but I read history ever since. Um, a lot of it, naval history and World War II history because of those two gentlemen. And uh, just tried to learn as much as I could about it. And uh, the more I read, the more I got into it. The more I read, the more I realized it's the world's greatest soap opera um, with crazy figures and crazy characters and everything else. And um, it's always changing. Um, you know, you always find out new things. Uh, one of the subjects you guys have discussed before is uh, Andrew Jackson and his presidency in some ways. And I remember when I was a kid, it was thought of as one of the best presidencies. And that mm. that has changed Jeez. with the information and knowledge that we have now. And that's one of the cool things about history is that it's always moving and it's mm. always changing. It's funny so that I you really refer like to that. it as it's it's funny that you refer to it as new information when actually it's just indoctrinating children. Yeah. That too. That too. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I think that's Jeez. one of the important things about history and history teachers and why it's important to teach history is to teach kids that you're gonna find out new things, you're gonna hear stuff that you didn't hear before and you've got to know how to process it learn it and take that information and deal with it so when we um one of the times i was uh one of the things roger and i used to do when we were in college is we would get <laughs> together and he would like you know a group of us from wesley would go over and he would cook dinner and then we would um eat uh have some beer and watch really crappy movies and make fun oh, yeah. of those movies <laughs> I think uh, I think Delta Force was probably one not Delta Force Mega Force was Mega Force Delta Force both yeah. I think um, you made fun you know, of Chuck Norris any movie where Chuck Norris destroys the entirety of the country of Lebanon in an hour is probably <laughs> a good example. Well, um, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
Whoa, but whoa, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I remember one of the times when we were over there, you pulled out some of the artifacts that I believe your mm -hmm. um, your father had accumulated after the war. So I had and... two groups. Yeah, um, I had a group from my father and a group from my grandfather. So my okay. grandfather had gotten me had I still have his army jacket from the Second World War and some things like that. But I also had his World War Two helmet and uh, a German army helmet that he had um unfortunately those were uh stolen when i lived in new york city uh, mm. <laughs> but i did have those for a long time um i also have from my father a uh, japanese army bayonet um, cool. it's, about, it's about two feet long um uh, it, it, there there's a great one of the books um references the japanese army the average soldier was five foot three his rifle was four and a half feet long and his bayonet was two feet long <laughs> and um you can kind of tell where we're going with that um so the japanese really believed that that was extension of their samurai sword and they taught their troops to use those bayonets and he got it at guadalcanal traded it from a marine i believe for some ice cream or something on the ship so cool. i've got that i've got a ton of uh pre-war philippine money i've got things like my dad's shore patrol badge um his uh truncheon you know the little billy club that they used in the shore patrol when he was in that and a couple other things like that so um yeah it's been really cool to have those sorts of things hanging around in my house i can't hmm. i can't believe someone i just that would infuriate me someone would break in and like steal i mean like that i mean because i remember sitting <laughs> at your house and holding this yeah. nazi it's helmet amazing and thinking amazing. this is i mean this isn't like i mean because as much theater as i've done obviously you've got props and stuff like that and this is the first time i'd held one that was i mean this is like the legit thing mm -hmm. and i think there was a stain on the inside of it that i remember yeah it was um, this yeah. yeah yeah which and, you know did not turn out well for the wearer of that particular <laughs> helmet <laughs> but um but yeah, and that was like the first time I'd really, and that just, it, that was the first time I just, I, to this day, just that kind of just blew my mind. And I'm like, my God, this was, you know, this is one of the, the real deals. So, um, and so what was it that you were wanting to, uh, to talk about on the podcast? Well, you know, um, my father was in the Navy, United States Navy, and he joined pre-war. Um, there's a famous story in the family that he was one of the best baseball players in New York City as a high schooler. But his mother didn't think that was a proper career back <laughs> in the 40s. Um, and he said, ding, dang it. If and I don't think he used those words. Um, and he's got to remember. That. Who's, who says that? Well, that was very 1930s. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, you got to remember, he was. I expect him to like twist his mustache and go, listen here, see? <laughs> see? Yeah. Um, <laughs> my father was a child of the Depression, certainly. Um, his parents were immigrants from Hungary. Uh, my grandmother has a brick at Ellis Island, as a matter of fact. Um, they uh, uh, were in the Depression. My grandfather was a barber and passed away when my father was a child. Um, hmm. And so my grandmother was left to raise him and his younger brother, seven years younger brother. And so when he became of age, she was very interested about him getting a job and getting out of the house. Um, they lived with a border. He slept on a couch. Um, as a result, she made $40 a month or a week. I have the census record somewhere. And uh, the funny thing about that record is when you look at my father's record, the rest of the page is written in the census writer's hands. This one section that says occupation next to my father's, my grandmother's handwriting, all in capital saying, looking for work. Yeah. Um, so she really didn't want him playing baseball. Well, that was passive aggressive. 
Yeah, no, that was just aggressive. <laughs> let's be honest. Um, my grandmother was a formidable woman. Day, that's his job, sitting on the couch, watching television. Yeah, yeah. No. no television back then, by the way. Um, but my father had an interesting, you know, depression-era life in New York. He met Babe Ruth. He met Lou Gehrig. Oh, cool. um, went to Yankee Stadium as a kid. Was a Yankee fan his whole life as a result. Um, he... Uh, he had the fight with his mother and said, I'm going to leave and go join the Navy and you'll never see me again. And they went to bed the next morning. She kicked him awake in the couch dressed and said, let's go. And he said, where are we going? She goes, we're going to the recruiting office. He said, you're joining the Navy. Mm. And she took him to the recruiting office and, and he went. Um, and that was 1940, early 1940. Um, he did his recruit training over in Newport, Rhode Island. And uh, the story that he told me about that was it was very tough. This was in the days before they uh, couldn't hit you or couldn't yell at you. So there was lots of, uh, if you screwed up, you got it stuff going lots on. Hitting, hitting and yelling, yes, right? hitting and yelling. Matter <laughs> of fact, one of the guys, when they graduated, the building was a six-story building. He went to the top of the building and jumped Ooh. because Ooh. he couldn't take it. And that was the level of stress that they were being put under. Jeez. Jeez. Um, from there, he went to um, basically the Pacific. He uh, got in a battleship, the USS New Mexico, sailed to Pearl Harbor. Um, and during the sailing, my grand, my mother was born during that time frame, so we have a lot of laugh about that in the family. Um, he got there and was posted to a cruiser, the USS Indianapolis. And, oh, yeah. uh, you Holy never cow. heard of that ship. Um, Holy cow. Yeah, so he was on the pre-war crew of the USS Indianapolis. Matter oh, of fact, he, it was going to be that ship or the USS Houston, which was in the Asiatic fleet. Um, that's the fleet that was in the Philippines. Thank mm -hmm. God it wasn't that ship because the Houston was sunk at the battle with the Japanese in uh, April of 42. And like two thirds of the crew were killed. The rest went mm. into a prison camp and only in 30% of those died. So, Jeez. yeah. So he was lucky to be on the Indianapolis, if you can believe that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he got to be, um, they were on, patrol around the Johnston Islands doing a mock bombardment. That's an island group near Hawaii in the Hawaiian Islands chain um, on December 7th, 1941. And wow. uh, he recalled hearing he had the talkers headphones on. If you've ever seen those huge helmets that look like they have the earphones built in, that's what he was doing for a gun crew. And he said he heard Air Raid Pearl Harbor. This is no drill over it. And then the captain came on and said, we're going north. We're going back to Pearl Harbor. Um, and they all thought they'd be dead within 48 hours. Um, wow. wow, wow, wow. They hooked up. It only lasted for, Pearl Harbor only lasted for what, about an hour? Uh, it was a couple of hours long. So Pearl Harbor, there were several different attacks, and the Japanese had some forces, especially um, Fushida, who was the commander. I always get Fushida and get them mixed up. I think it's Fushida, was the commander of the strike force. He loitered in the area, definitely, and kind of directed some strafing and other things in between the attacks, but they had two waves. And uh, he went up, they hooked up with USS Lexington, which was one of the aircraft carriers, thankfully not there at the time of the attack. And they hunted for the Japanese for a few days. Um, they got back to Pearl Harbor December 11th or so. The ships were still burning. Um, wow. They went to refit and refuel and they went down the deck and said, everybody line up. And every 10th guy, they said, go stand over there. And he was one of the 10 guys. And those guys were all put in a boat and sent ashore for the next week um, to do cleanup at Pearl Harbor. Jeez. Oh, so God. He, wow. He, tried, he was one of the crews that um, cut open or tried to cut open the USS Oklahoma, which had capsized mm -hmm. with most of its crew inside the ship. 
um, and try to get those guys out. He was part of the last group of guys to tie up the USS Arizona. Um, he fished bodies out of the water. He mm. all sorts of stuff. So he had a pretty miserable, as you might expect, week. You know, I was um, watching a documentary on the USS Arizona, and actually one of the main people that they focused on was uh, Donald Stratton, who yeah, just passed away last, last weekend. Mm -hmm. And um, they were talking about the cleanup after uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor, especially on the Arizona. And they said that they were um, walking through, and at some point, you know, they noticed there's a whole bunch of ashes that were getting kicked up, and they realized that they were walking along the remains of people who had, you know, mm -hmm. basically been, I mean, burned down to charcoal. Because uh, the Arizona burned for two days. At least um, it burned for days because it, you know, it hit the magazine and then just took everything with it. Um, yeah. And it was, uh, yeah, that was, uh, it was a PBS documentary that just came out this past year. And um, they were talking about, I didn't realize exactly where it hit. It was, it hit pretty close to the bow. Mm -hmm. It uh, at least the ship. For, at least the, at yeah. least the damage from the, mm -hmm. the three, they did 3D well, that, imaging of the ship that was incredibly detailed. And the front of the, the front ship um, is like blossomed open. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it was, uh, yep. I mean, I mean, you, you take a look at the explosion. Yeah. But um, I didn't realize yeah, it, was, it was. It got hit twice at the front. And it was amazing that the Japanese used a 16-inch uh, naval shell that they put fins on to do that. Um, wow. And that's what they used. The level bombers, they were the Kates is what they were called, and uh, dropped it, and it went into the forward magazine under the second turret, they believe, and then set that magazine off, and it all just <laughs> broke the ship in half, basically. Um, there wasn't, you know, of all the ships sunk at Pearl Harbor, and everybody hears, you know, nine, seven battleships sunk, yada, yada, yada. Um, all but two were raised, and that was the Oklahoma, which capsized, and there was no way they could fix that ship. And then, of course, the Arizona, which they even thought about getting up during the war and getting it out of there because it was taking up space, and they needed it for ships, but they realized in the condition it was in split in half and the way it was, they couldn't do it with the technology of the time. So, um, but they did remove some of the turrets and uh, sent them, if you want, the back turrets of the Arizona were used as a uh, naval um, hmm. during the war because they needed uh, naval guns to protect against a potential invasion. And dad said when they were there, that was every night, there would be gunfire everywhere because everybody was so nervous. Anything, yeah. any noise, everybody just started shooting. So, and that lasted for another week or two after the, uh, the bombing. So he did that, um, went back out with the Indianapolis for a couple months, uh, got to be on some of the carrier raids in the South Pacific, the early ones, um, in the New Guinea area. Um, he came back, the ship was sent for a refit, uh, USA Indianapolis, and at that point he was detached from the crew of the Indianapolis, thank God. Um, for listeners who don't know the history of that ship, if you've ever seen the movie Jaws and Quint, talking mm -hmm. about um you know 800 men went into the water and 100 came out that's the ship he's talking about um it took the atomic bomb to uh the island the marianas and right. then went south to the philippines and was sunk by a japanese submarine with most of its crew so um pretty crazy mm. <laughs> yeah, that was a yeah that train yeah that trains was that uh was spruance the one that was on that for a time Spruance was what, the what? Uh, was the flagship of the Fifth Fleet for a long time with Admiral Spruance on board. Jason, I know you starred 
you know, no, 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 <laughs> but, they, <laughs> but that did transport the uh, the bomb parts, yes, it did indeed, yeah. it did indeed. Yeah. Um, and then they used that's what that's what got the bombs over there and the ones that were dropped on Japan. So they did that. Um, so they went to Mare Island, had a refit, and during all this time, the war in the Pacific's going on, and you know, a lot of the popular views of the war in the Pacific is Pearl Harbor, Midway, and then we dropped the bomb. But there's so much stuff that goes on in between this. Um, an amazing construction project by the United States to build numerous ships and planes and boats. And when they get to the point where they're building all this, they realize they need crews. So they started taking men off of ships who were experienced, my father being among them, and sending them to new ships and being the crew, the initial crew for those new ships. So my father was sent to Brooklyn, oddly enough, near his home, and was placed aboard the USS Ratford, a destroyer, Fletcher-class destroyer, DD-446. Um, and he was made a, a gun, gun captain on that ship. He commanded a 5-inch mount, later on a 40-millimeter mount. Um, and uh, that ship then went from New went into the Atlantic, did some convoy escorts, and then eventually ended up back in the Pacific with my father on it. Um, they sank a U-boat supposedly in the Atlantic um, that is somewhat disputed you know records say this records say that it's but they the how, how did they one. how did they actually how did they sink it uh, depth charges um, they detected oh, okay. sonar and ran over it with depth wow. charges um, dad ship we'll get to that in a minute but they got a couple subs during this period um, they get to Pearl Harbor they're sent to the Solomon Islands group which is an island chain north of um, Australia um, it is a long kind of stringy group of islands that almost forms a barrier on top of um, New Guinea and Australia, if you look at the map. Um, and the United States, after Midway, looking for something to do. And the uh, Navy Department, um, well, it really was. The Navy Department wanted to make sure that the Pacific War was kept going because Europe first was the strategy that the Allies had agreed on. But sure. the Navy wanted to fight the Japanese. And wanted the I money to why. fight the Japanese. I mean, was there uh, some sort of personal affront that uh, had happened uh, with the Navy and the Japanese? Well, well let's, let's be honest. Two, two reasons. Two reasons. One was the personal front to Japanese. The other was if they had fought the war in Europe with all their heart and soul. So Tr Roosevelt and Churchill agreed Hitler's the most dangerous person around here. Um, the Japanese are bad, but we're not going to go crazy. We're just going to hold them in place. And we're going to go take out Adolf Hitler, and then we'll turn all our energies on Japan. Well, the Navy, in particular, the commander-in-chief of the Navy, a gentleman named Ernest King, um, realized a couple things. One, that he hated the British. <laughs> two, two, that he hated the Army almost as much as he hated the British. And um, three, if we went to Europe, there, the Germans had no Navy at that point, I mean, of any worth really um if we went there there would be no need for all the carriers and battleships he wanted to build and were approved mm -hmm. so in order to maintain a budgetary thing the war in the pacific which the navy had been planning for for 30 years plan orange um would have to move forward so he kind of pushed his commanders into invading a couple of islands at the end of the solomons called guadalcanal and Tolgai, two little spots in the middle of nowhere. And they pieced together an invasion and threw a Marine division on the island. 
Um, mm. The Japanese reacted as one might expect and then promptly sank four of our heavy cruisers, killed a thousand guys. And the rest of the United States Navy um, turned tail and said, we're out of here, <laughs> leaving the Marines on the island. Okay, so um, Guadalcanal, uh, I was always under the impression that that was the big um, crowning achievement when uh, Teddy Roosevelt was trying to give us um, a connection between the Gulf of Mexico and the Pacific. Right, that, right. Yeah, yeah, that would be the Panama Canal, Jason. Um, oh, nice try, Hatfield. Really? Swing and a miss. That, <laughs> that makes more sense. <laughs> um, there was no canal on I want to tell you guys because I knew you'd be annoyed by me just throwing in <laughs> nonsense like that but go ahead oh Hatfield so the Marines get to Guadalcanal no, no, explain to us the strategic importance of Guadalcanal so Guadalcanal sits literally on the sea lanes between Australia and the United States and right. to maintain that link and at the time the United States command structure in the Pacific at the time was so screwed up, you wouldn't believe it. Um, you have Admiral Limits, who's the commander of the Pacific Fleet in Hawaii, and he runs the Pacific Ocean for the Navy, basically. But in Australia, you have General Douglas MacArthur, and mm -hmm. he has just gotten there from the Philippines, and he's supposed to run the Army's War in the Pacific. So these two forces are kind of working together, but not. Um... So they MacArthur? Divide. MacArthur not sharing? What? That's what? <laughs> MacArthur was an interesting figure that almost deserves his own podcast, to be honest. Um he uh, I will admit I, I will I will grant you that. I will grant you that. <laughs> he they come up with a weird solution. So what they do is they put a dividing line in the middle of the Solomons, basically, and say on this side it's MacArthur, and on that side it's Nimitz. And technically Guadalcanal kind of strides the border of that so gotcha. they also appoint an admiral to help out down there and be kind of the guy who's in charge of the south pacific area and work with macarthur that's admiral robert gormley who is a big favorite of Te theodore theodore roosevelt's franklin roosevelt whichever president jason you just screwed me up on that one um, <laughs> you're welcome you're welcome you're thank welcome. you so much it was franklin and um and <laughs> the leader of the uh, liaison office pre-war with the British in London. So he was a very politically collect connected admiral. Um, as a combat admiral, he was not as quite successful. Um, so as he's, he, you know, he approves the carriers moving away, but he doesn't rush to reinforce the troops at Guadalcanal. And the Japanese are just as confused, and if you think relations between the United States Army and Jap, are, uh, the United States Army and the United States Navy are bad, the Japanese Navy and Army view each other as sort of like communists and Nazis view each other, um, and they argue about what to do. The Army says, "Oh, U.S. troops are no good. We're going to send a group there and just wipe them out." So they send something called uh, the Akiki Regiment. And my Japanese is terrible, Jason. So if you ever want to correct it, please do. Um, uh, uh, so guys, yeah, so did they. 800 guys um, go on the island and move to attack the Marines, who number about 14,000. And mm. are, if they kept anything during the, when the Navy left, it was all their guns and ammo. Yeah. So the uh, first attack from the Japanese, we'll just say, does not go well for the Japanese. And that entire unit is wiped out pretty much. And the last they saw of Colonel Akiki, 
who was the they named their regiments after the commanders uh was he wrapped himself in his flag and shot himself so that was the end of the first kind of land battle on guadalcanal um over the next few weeks the japanese realized there's more troops there so they start landing guys the united states navy at this point isn't really interfering much um and you've got to remember at this point the United States Navy is not the juggernaut monster it was in 43, 44, and 45. They are splitting, you know, the U-boat war is in full force. We're invading in a couple of months North Africa. They don't have the ships. They don't have the material yet to overwhelm the Japanese. Um, the United States are losing carriers to submarines. There's a couple of carrier clashes where we lose another submarine. And I mean, another carrier, uh, the battleship North Carolina is hit by a torpedo. Jason, right. you've seen that in Wilmington. It yeah. blows a whole side of a house in it. Well, it's, well, it's, 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 uh, it's fixed. It's, it's fixed now. Yeah, it's good now. Um, yeah. But uh, so, you know, the U.S. <laughs> Navy's not doing well. And uh, Nimitz flies south and sees Gormley and basically reads him the right act and says, listen, you've got to get your thumb out of wherever it is and get going and help these people. And you start seeing night battles off Guadalcanal. Uh, naval night battles and uh, the United States oddly enough wins the first one the Battle of Cape Esperance uh, where uh, we sink a Japanese cruiser in exchange in a destroyer for one of our own destroyers um, and we get a commander Norman Scott who actually knows what he's doing in night battles so yahoo for us wow. um, a couple months later Nimitz is pried loose from the army and army regiment the 164th He's going to send them to Guadalcanal, and he sends a strong force of what he has, which is cruisers and destroyers, with them. Mm-hmm. They land, they take off, the transports take off, and the cruisers and the destroyers stay there. Um, Gormley, at this point, is replaced by Admiral Halsey, who is very aggressive. Um, and Gormley's assistant, his chief of staff, is a guy named Callahan, who was Roosevelt's naval aide before the war. And he has three days more seniority than this guy, Admiral Scott, who won the first naval battle. So he's placed in charge of the ships instead of Scott. Hmm. And the ships at night on the night of November 12th and 13th run into a Japanese force of two battleships, two cruisers, and like 18 destroyers versus 13 U.S. ships. Jeez. They run into them in the middle of the night in darkness with limited radar at ranges so close the Japanese battleships can't depress their guns low enough to fire on the U.S. ships. Wow. And it is one of, if you ever read about the Naval Battle of Guadalcanal, that is the craziest, nuttiest engagement you're ever going to read about. Um, Hmm. A couple U.S. US ships just disintegrate under torpedo fire. A Japanese ship blows up. Fun. Yeah, we blow up the, we get, the next morning, the planes at Henderson Field on Guadalcanal sink the Japanese battleship um, Haihi, H-E-I-E. Um, and then on the way out of the battle, um, have you guys ever heard of the Sullivan Brothers? Uh, yeah, Iowa right here. That's right. I was going to say there's an <laughs> Iowa connection in the room. Um, the Sullivan Brothers on the USS Juno, which was a light cruiser, an anti-aircraft cruiser, which was never meant for surface combat. Leaving the area with a broken back due to a torpedo takes two more torpedoes from a Japanese submarine and disintegrates. Yep. Um, wow. 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 And wow. Pretty much everybody on board's killed, and they said that they saw parts of the ship like entire turrets landing a mile away from the force of explosion. Goodness gracious. And those are twin five-inch turrets. They're big guns. So they the task force that's left, which is shot to pieces by the Japanese, just leaves because they don't think anybody survived. Obviously. 
Jason Rude, you know the story that yeah, yeah, guys survived, including a couple of the Sullivan brothers, the five Sullivan brothers who died at sea then. And yeah. only yeah. I think like 30 guys are picked up out of the whole ship. Yes, um, correct. All five brothers end up dying. It's somewhat of a somewhat of a basis for the uh uh movie um what do you call it? Saving, Saving Private Ryan. Ryan. That's the one. Yep. Uh, along with, I think there was another set of stories in there too. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and there's a World War II movie done about the Sullivan Brothers as well. As you ever get a chance to watch it, that is no, they, uh, yeah, they melodramatic. All, <laughs> I've seen it. All I've seen five it. brothers were serving on the same ship. Yes. Yeah, they had been guaranteed by their recruiter and the Navy. Um, when it got going, the Navy, the lieutenant who was in charge of the office, they got to was like, "No, I'm not putting you on the same ship. That's stupid." And he was overruled <laughs> by his admiral and the PR department because it was good PR for the Navy. And the Navy used them as poster boys, basically. I and just figured so, their mom came up and said, I want to talk to the manager. <laughs> yeah, not quite that easy, but similar. Yeah, so they uh, they died, and there was a huge PR crisis for the Navy after that. Obviously. Yeah, I'd imagine um, so. They so, did name a destroyer after them. Yep. Uh, as well so and that destroyer is still around actually you can visit it i don't remember where it's at but it is intact and i, I think it's buffalo yeah. i think um, you're right um in fact i know it's buffalo and so okay. roger real quick before you go on off that mm-hmm. uh the sullivan brothers grew up uh, 35 miles south of me so it's it's kind oh, of wow. a, it's a kind of a big deal in yeah. my area so yep i'm sure my goodness so what were their what were their ages you know hold on uh, if they were not old i mean they were Early 20s, 20s to mid-30s. teens, probably. Okay. Well, the, so one of them was older. There is a surviving daughter to from Joe, maybe. I forget. It was the oldest. He had a daughter. Um, so then I want to say it was like late 20s, to uh, the ranging down to upper teens, like late teens. Mm-hmm. The Jeez. oldest yeah, one was 28. There we go. And the youngest one was 20. Yeah. George, that, Francis, uh, Joseph, Madison, and Albert. There you go. George has the daughter who's still alive. Mm-hmm. No, it was Joe. Yeah, George, George, George. Yeah. And so, it is currently docked in uh, in Buffalo. Yep. Yeah, and there is a modern-day Navy ship, the USS Sullivan's, which is an Argyle Bird-class destroyer, which is currently serving. Correct. Oh, wow. Well. Well. I, yeah. I got a friend who's one of the um, directors of the historical park in, in Buffalo, and I forgot she, yeah, she works with that ship. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's home ported. The new ship is home ported in Mayport, Florida. So she's uh-huh. right there. Okay. Um, so anyway, that aside. Yep. Um, they died. There's a giant, you know, both admirals are killed on the United States side. Um, and basically because they just ran headlong into the Japanese in the middle of the night. Now they stopped the bombardment the next night. There is a bombardment by heavy cruisers, and then the next night is one of the few battleship on battleship engagements in the entire Pacific War, where the United States sends two battleships, the USS Washington, which is the sister of the USS North Carolina, and the USS South Dakota, along with four destroyers into this into Iron Bottom Sound, and they take on a Japanese battleship, the Kirishima, two heavy cruisers, and a bunch of sport ships, and they clean house. Um, the South Dakota has a malfunction and gets hit by every Japanese ship that sees it. The Washington is hidden and then just obliterates the Kirishima with something they estimate up to 40 16-inch shell hits, which, if you know, a 16-inch shell is basically the size of a Volvo. I mean, it's a big gun. <laughs> so, I mean, you're talking goodbye, nurse. 
Um, so <laughs> the at this point is where my father reenters the story. Um, his ship shows up in the Sol- Solomons after the And he's on what ship again? He's on the USS Ratford, and her sister ships have been involved in these engagements. Um, he's a member of the destroyer squadron that they were in. They show up, and he said they sailed into the harbor um, where they were based, and the other ships were jeering them and saying, good luck to you, wait till the Japs get a hold of you. Excuse the word Japs, but that's what the terms they were using. Um, and you're going to see what real combat is now. Good luck. And for the next six to eight months, they fought their way around the Solomons. Um, my dad's ship was involved in bombardment duty. Um, it was involved in escorting heavy cruisers on night battles. He was in the Battle of Kula Gulf, um, which was a pretty substantial battle where the USS Helena, which is a light cruiser, was hit by several torpedoes, blown in half, and sank. Um, and his ship won the presidential unit citation that night along with the USS Nicholas for rescuing the crews and fighting off the Japanese destroyers that were in the area. Mm. Um, and there's a famous picture, and I'll, Jason, I'll try to send it to you if I can find it, okay. of his ship um, coming into Tulgai Harbor that night after the thing loaded with survivors of the Helena. And mm. uh, he was in another night battle where a couple of U.S. cruisers got sunk. Um, his ship was one of the first that shot down a plane with radar-controlled gunfire at night. Um, the only problem was it was a United States aircraft. Oh, oh. It was a B-25. <laughs> And Whoops. he said, boy, were those, guys, those guys were so mad when we fished them out of the water. And I was like, yeah, I bet, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> just a thought. I'm kind of thinking Boy, they were just, just ill as hornets. Yeah, they were <laughs> at all with us. Um, so, you know, the land battle goes on as well. The Japanese are pumping in reinforcements with the Tokyo Express, which was they figured out pretty quick that with the U.S. on the island with an airfield, they couldn't get there in daytime with transports. So they used their destroyers, and that's what a lot of these night battles were. We're trying to stop those destroyers loaded with men and supplies getting to Guadalcanal. Um, By the end of the year, in the early 1943 period, one of the Japanese lieutenants wrote, and I'm going to mess this up a little bit, but the gist was, uh, if you can't, if you can walk, you have a week to live. If you are forced to sit down, you have two days to live. If you cannot blink, you have 24 hours. The starvation okay. and disease was so rampant in the island for the Japanese soldiers that they were literally dying of disease and starvation rather than Ugh. the United States Marine Corps and the Army, who was there at this point in greater numbers. Um, the Japanese then masterfully evacuate everybody who's left at the end of January, ending the Guadalcanal Island battle and leading to the rest of the Solomons and the New Guinea campaigns, where we move up the islands with uh, various landings and attacks in all in my dad's ships bombarding them and in the middle of it um, there are a lot of stories he has about um, you know uh, fighting Japanese barges at close range Um, there was one night he and another ship were um, it was at night and they see something light up in the distance and they realize it's a Japanese submarine on the surface lighting um cigarettes the crew's lighting cigarettes and so they slide over there and the japs funny thing about ships you don't hear them and the japanese never heard them coming and they flipped on the searchlights and plastered them and i think it was the other ship was uss nicholas the story was that one of the cooks came on deck and was throwing potatoes 
they were so yeah. close <laughs> at the yeah. Japanese. But, uh, so, you know, I will feed you until story. you die from it. Yeah, I'm you know, Irish. Yeah, I, mean, I tell you. Um, you know, there were stories about um, ships doing crazy things like one of the ships fired a torpedo into its own stack by mistake and had to figure out how to get it out without it exploding. Um, the, nice. uh, the night the Helena sank, Dad vividly remembers sitting at his gun position and watching the torpedoes go under his ship. Holy to cow. Go blow up the Helena. And it was that close of actions and it was at night and you know until 43 dad was very clear about the fact that they didn't know if they were going to win um the thought the, the was, war in general the war, war in general they were so nervous the guys there because you know again if you're a seaman on a ship and dad was a gunner's mate too topped out at which is not a you know it's like a low buck sergeant um in the army you don't get the information that the top guys are getting. So you're on this ship with two, 300 other guys. It's in this area near the equator. There's bad air conditioning at best on us ships and on British ships, there was no air conditioning. Um, you're eating whatever food they're serving you, which dad was, it was a uh, spam and baked beans 90% of the time. Mm. Um, I <laughs> drinking hot coffee in the you know 100 degree heat um he told a story one of my favorite ones was they came back after a bombardment mission and were cleaning the ship up and reloading gun stuff you know ammo and fuel and one of the supply ships said hey we have 10 cases of cold coke do you want it and they said oh gosh yes and they said everybody got sick Coca-Cola <laughs> because it was the best thing that they had had in five years you know it was like oh my god how can we do this um so you know he's doing these patrols they go down to australia for a uh a leave where dad for a while you know he does his leave and then he does a shore patrol duty and he vividly remembers guys so drunk that the ship's cranes were being used with netting and they'd lay everybody in the netting and just pick the guys up with a netting and drop them on them. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's outstanding. Uh, and dad said that the amount of women that it was funny because a lot of the Australian men obviously were off to the war as well. It was debauchery and drinking everywhere. And there are numerous, sure. uh, yeah, there's a terrific, I can't remember if it was a PBS special or a History Channel special that was actually pretty good on a riot that happens in Sydney between the United States Navy forces and the civilians because they got, oh. got sick of it at some point. They're like, okay, we're done. Um, that, wow. So, you know, is that the equivalent? Of, is that the equivalent of throwing a cold cold bucket of water on them? Yeah, we hope so. Um, so we always used to joke with my dad that at some point some seventy year old Australian guy is going to come to the door and say, "Hi, I'm your stepbrother." <laughs> um, mom never enjoyed that story as much um so we uh you know so he goes back out in fights in new guinea um is part of the tarawa and Macon island invasions um where he okay. witnesses the destruction of the uss liscombe bay which is an escort carrier gets hit by a torpedo from a submarine and also disintegrates with every member of its crew um mm. they fight all through the southern part of the war. So if the United States really had two tracks in the Pacific, the southern track was kind of MacArthur's, and he went through Guinea and the Solomons and all that up to where the Philippines were. And at the same time, the rest of the United States Navy 
um, with Nimitz was going the northern route or the middle route, really, through the Marianas, through Tarawa, which I think everybody's heard of, the awful. There was an invasion. That was the first big invasion of a Japanese-held island that was staunch, and it was a mm-hmm. bloodbath, and it was one of the first real bloodbath battles that they had. And, of course, the Japanese, if your listeners don't know, they didn't surrender. Um, the the code they lived by per- forbade them from surrendering so they would fight to the mm-hmm. death or kill themselves and they would uh they would also tell the civilians about mm-hmm. um that if the americans took over that they would do just horrifically horrible things to to them right. um and in fact uh the there's a book called uh, embracing defeat which uh, discusses the japanese uh or the americans um uh occupying japan after world war ii and the racism inherent racism between the two sides uh during that existence and they were basically saying that yeah um if america wins and they're going to occupy us then the women will be like just all of them they'll do horrible travesties and they focused a lot on african-american soldiers Mm -hmm. um saying that yeah these are the ones that are going to try and come over and do this and the Japanese government Jeez. tried to institute uh, legal brothels to try and stem whatever sort of atrocities they thought the American soldiers would have. I mean, it's, it's all this kind of crazy stuff, but they would tell the occupants of these islands that, you know, if they come in here, they're going to do horrible things. So, you know, I don't think it was at, right. at Tarawa. I think it was maybe so Okinawa. So the first time this really happens is that um, in Spyan, which is and I'm probably not pronouncing that right, but it's in the Mariana Islands in 1944. And it's one of those, at this point, you start seeing the scope of the war, the Second World War. And this is one of the things that interests me about it. it, it we invade the Marianas on June 15th, 1944. Um, there was something else going on on the other side of the world about that time, <laughs> um, which of course was the invasion of Normandy. Um, but hmm. we, there were over 700 ships involved in this invasion, including 15 aircraft carriers and 12 battleships. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're doing the same thing. So just the massive scale of the United States Navy at this point is so um, apparent. But we invade in Spyan is really the first place we invade that has Japanese civilians because it was a longtime Japanese possession. Is it, is it Saipan? Saipan, thank you. That's okay. it. Yeah, okay. My pronunciation goes crazy. But no, Saipan okay. was the first place that... Um, we invade that has civilians, Japanese civilians. And there are horror stories. The Marines told of these civilians jumping off cliffs. Oh yeah. Oh, there's, they there's, did not there's... want to surrender to the United States. Yeah. The, I mean, there's a, I think it's a video. I, I don't know. If yeah, there, there is video. video. Yes, one. there is video on that. Um, Where you would have like peasant women essentially holding onto their children and jumping off of cliffs. Jeez. And, it's really, and the thing is, is it was it was horrific. But you know, the only information that these people had was that well, these Americans are going to come and they're going to butcher you. I mean, the right. The I mean, regardless, there was when you like, for example, um, in my uh, room, classroom, there is um, a map of it's kind of it was a published one of like what the invasion of uh, Iwo Jima. I believe was mm-hmm. and they and with uh the gilder lerman institute had sent it and there was a little scrap of paper that went in there that said that there's offensive language on this poster so just be prepared and it's because they use the term japs mm-hmm. on the poster 
But um, <laughs> there was a great deal of, um, you know, obviously racist propaganda towards mm-hmm. the Japanese. But, I mean, the Japanese did were doing the exact same exact thing. Same the, thing depi- yeah. the depictions yeah. of American soldiers as these guerrilla, hairy, kind of oafish sort of people. It's um, I, it's it was interesting to me to kind of see that reverse kind of a uh, perspective, well, but yeah. yeah, and it you know if you talk about the origins of the Second World War in the Pacific, you you that ends up being a conversation because the Japanese government as well as the American government, and I mean my father, you know, born in a different time, he was born in 1921, um, died at 95 a few years ago, but wow. I don't think he referred to the Japanese as a Japanese until the day he died. I mean, they were always, again, forgive the language, but the Japs. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. And he told me one point, I had dated some girl who was of Japanese origin. And I was like, eh, what oh, happens boy. if I get married oh, to her? Oh, boy. And he kind of thought, and it was like, well, I, I guess it'd be all right. It's been 40 years since the war, but <laughs> if it had been sooner, maybe not. Um, <laughs> well, they they had a a, a um, memorial of um, Pearl Harbor at the USS North Carolina when I was living in Wilmington, and I went over there, and they had some Pearl Harbor survivors, and I remember talking to one of them, and I don't remember, I don't think I asked, but um, I think somebody had asked if he had ever felt the need to apologize or make amends with a Japanese uh, oh. soldier or airman or whatnot, and he was like, well, they've never apologized to me, so I ain't never going to apologize to them. And I'm like, you know, that's a really, that's an awful long time to hold yeah. on to that much hate. Well, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're I'll a see. Hatfield saying this. <laughs> <laughs> you, that's don't see, that's, you don't, that's fair. You don't see me, well, you, first of all, you don't see me cursing McCoys every single day. And I as know. a person whose grandmother was named McCoy, I'm very glad he doesn't. Oh, <laughs> right. uh, we, don't, we don't talk about that, Roger. No, we don't. Um, <laughs> we, don't. we don't. We don't even bring it up. Um, no. You know, it, it's one of the weird, the Pacific War is so different than America's war in the European theater in that the level of brutality was such, so much more so. I mean, war is always awful and terrible, um, but the war in the Pacific was much more akin to what the Germans and the Russians were doing racially and to each other than it was to any of the other fighting going on. Um, you have the Japanese who, you know, yeah, we want to have the greater co-Asia prosperity sphere or however they put that right and you know yes you're equal to us because you're asian but you're really less than equal to us because we're the top dogs and you see right. that in places like nanking and shanghai in the philippines where they're committing unspeakable acts of mm-hmm. brutality um but dad talked often in his later years and you know when i got some of the bad stories out of him anyway of you know they're they've shot up a bunch of Japanese barges full of troops in New Guinea and they're traveling back over the same area and they're all in the water. And um, the Japanese troops are either swimming away from them and drowning themselves, pulling out a pistol and trying to kill them or the U S sailors on the same and without provocation from the Japanese are using machine guns and just slaughtering them in the water. And Mm. it was that level of, hatred and brutality that existed between those two combatants that is somewhat underreported in the Pacific War. I mean, you always hear about, you know, the Japanese were very tough and fought to the death and didn't treat prisoners well. Um, but in a lot of which ways... Is, which is true. Which is Yeah, true. which is all 100% true. But the United States took no quarter either after they figured out what was going on. 
and right. there was a lot of that going on and it was you know not saying you should do it or you shouldn't do it i i don't know well, how I would react to be in that position. That was so, oh my God, how awful would that be? Well, you, you've got to also take, you know, in the context of the time, and yeah, I talked exactly. about this with my, with my class, that um, the Japanese had fought with the uh, the Entente powers in World War One, mm -hmm. And um, after the war was over, you have this scramble to um, demilitarize so that there's not these kind of like feelings of, concern of mm -hmm. um i have more military than you do and so when it gets down to it then you have the washington naval conference which you know the was it the 553 treaty where americans and british get five ships for every three that the japanese get and i think the japanese were constantly just feeling like you know you have going all the way back to the 1850s mm -hmm. where uh commodore perry sails into um uh, you know the harbor and says we want to uh, we want you guys to open back up to the west and we have all these ships with guns and i mean they had fishing boats that they rode out with samurai to try and yeah. get them to turn around and go back <laughs> and and that's when you know and it caused a huge upheaval in the japanese society because mm -hmm. uh commodore perry said well we're going to leave and we're going to come back next year and when we come back you're going to give us your answer and of course they come back with twice as many boats or whatnot i mean like this huge fleet <laughs> and um the japanese go into this upheaval the shogun immediately claims that he's sick and because you know he doesn't know what to do and he doesn't want to have to you know deal with this uh with this situation and then you have people that are saying well we are completely behind the rest of the world since we've closed ourselves off and now it's put us in this disadvantage and so they spend 50 years basically modernizing, learning, you know, educational, military, all these kind of things to try and catch up with the rest of the world. And even when they do that, they beat the Chinese and the Chinese were considered basically the superior, the, the mm -hmm. um, sure. intellectual superiors in Asia. And then, you know, um, you have the Japanese beat them in the 1890s. And then you have them sink the Russian Navy in the early 1900 or yeah, yeah, 1905. And then so now you have the Japanese are like, we are finally proving ourselves. They, you know, they win with the winning side in World War One, but they are constantly treated as, you know, a third world nation by so by, you know, Western countries. So you do. I mean, like the whole reason yeah. uh, like Russia um you know, the, uh, they, what was it? Uh, the Chinese were trying to get Port Arthur. The, no, yeah. the Japanese got Port Arthur from yeah, the Russians. Yeah. Well, they were, someone was trying, you know, they, yeah, that's what it, they were trying to get the um, Port Arthur from Russia. And I think it was Germany tried to press them to stop because they didn't need it. They had done enough. And so the Japanese finally gave it up. And then the Germans basically say, no, you guys lease it to us instead, which then it was like, what? This whole time, you know, you guys were so this so step that's after sing, step. Yeah, that's um, I can't pronounce it. It's in China. It's Sing Sing Tao. There, there's a beer that's named that because the Germans took it over and built a brewery there. I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about now. Imagine um, that. You know, one of the I think to that point, Jason, one of the most remarkable things in history is the um, absolute transformation of Japanese culture from Commodore Perry into the early part of that's the, 19th, one of the 20th Meiji. century. 
the Meiji restoration is like a really, really fascinating. It, uh, it's really yeah. interesting. And if you want to read, if you want a, a Navy thing, that's, that's insane. Read the uh, account of the second Pacific squadron of the Russian Navy as they come to the battle of Tsushima in 1905 in that, um, they almost start wars with Germany, Britain, France, Spain on their way there because they are so badly led. It is an absolutely incredibly crazy story that goes on. Um, at one point, the Russian ships fire a bunch of British fishing vessels thinking they're Japanese destroyers in the North Sea. It, it almost <laughs> triggers a world war with Japan, with Britain. Um, Yikes. So, and Britain but had like 30 times the battleships they did. So it's just crazy stuff. So yeah, and which which you know because of this consideration of bad leadership, then you have mm -hmm. basically the Bolsheviks that are saying, you know, this whole czarist thing that we've got going on, I don't think that's working anymore. Right. I think and if you, you know, who is it that I'm thinking of? There's a famous Russian revolutionary um, that they name a ship after. Eventually, that his diary for that journey talks about that, and that's all it talks about is how he. Uh, how the Zara's stuff is going on, how it's crazy. Um, the admiral who left, and I know we're digressing, but the admiral who left um, Russia for the Pacific said, I only want the most modern ships, but he was overruled and he was sent with ships like 40 years old because they wanted to, everybody wanted their own touch of glory um, on the way. And at one point they stopped, I can't remember if it was South Africa or Madagascar for a couple months to refuel and get things put back together after going around the Horn of Africa. And they had a huge problem because every one of their sailors either got sick, got VD, or it got a parrot or a monkey off the island and put them on the ships. And like you do. Yeah, like you do. It, it's just insane story, but that's different. You know, but, Jason, uh, about your, your thing about the Japanese feeling culturally like we're not treated as equals. Right. In the 1920s, there was the Washington Naval Treaty, which was the treaty right after the Second First World War, which said, okay, we don't want to build crazy again. That's led to the First World War. Let's be smart. Um, United States and... Yeah, that's the 553 Britain, Treaty. 5-5-3 Treaty, exactly. The yeah. Japanese were the three, and they were not happy. But the well, thing, but, but you have... But the, the rationale behind it with the uh, English yeah. and the... Eng we're like, well, we have so much more Two oceans, you have power. one. Yeah, right. you have one ocean, we have two. But and then, still, I mean, let's be honest. It was they they oh, didn't yeah. consider the Japanese to be. I mean, well, I mean, no. If you look, I mean, look at the pre-war United States. You talked about this earlier. The pre-war United States propaganda, where every Japanese person was, you know, five foot one, had thick glasses, couldn't see. Right. And, you know, Dad. My father talked about that, and he said, you know, we were all told that the Japanese pilots couldn't hit the broadside of a barn because they were all nearsighted. And he said, we learned real quick at Pearl Harbor that wasn't the case. Um, right. So, you know, and then, you know, the other remarkable part of that story, Jason, is it goes through that guy's, you see, in 1904, 1905, when the war with the Russians is fought, the Japanese are the most scrupulous, honorable treatment of prisoners and prisoners who are wounded you will ever see in your life, in civilians. They treat them like gold. And mm. by the time the Second World War runs around, because of the rise of fascism in Japan, the Bushido Code, it is completely flipped and hmm. you know it's not as well publicized as the germans but the japanese did just as many medical experiments well, and that's prisoners and the chinese and everything else it, it's just well when the we barbarity to, of all this is amazing when we were in uh, new orleans and we went to the world war ii um museum mm -hmm. which again if you haven't been it's yeah it's a remarkable place it's it's massive 
And when we were, we went through, we only had a little bit of time, but we went through both the European and, and oh, I wanted to go through the, the Pacific campaign mm-hmm. because that's, you know, what I yeah. focused mainly on. And, um, and it was, it was interesting because as a teacher, this is kind of important because, um, I'm sitting there and as we're going through, we're getting, uh, to the end. And my wife is like, I did not realize that the Japanese, were that bad in terms of like their behavior and the the barbarity that they had during that time and um so it was like yeah i said oh this this doesn't even begin to talk about no you know this is obviously for families to come in they're not gonna you know give you the the whole (laughs) description but she's like um she said i had no idea she says you hear about the holocaust you hear about the germans and the nazis she said i didn't realize and when we were watching the um, the documentary on the USS Arizona, again, she came around what she said. I was just so, you know, um, surprised by all that. I said, you, I mean, you really don't know the half of it. It's No, it, it, there is a wonderful book, and I think it was 10, 15 years ago, probably, on the uh, rape of Nanking. And um, if you ever, it's on, it's on um, Amazon. You can get it. It was a, I can't remember if it was a Pulitzer prize or something, but it won a big award and read that book. If you, and make sure you have a strong stomach going into it because it is absolutely chilling and Mm. just, you're talking about probably up to 300,000 dead Chinese killed by the Japanese soldiers just in just for fun. Now, do you think uh, um, now there there is um, and I don't know if this is very much like the um, the Holocaust denier type mm-hmm. thing, but there is pushback to say that the Nanking either didn't happen or wasn't as bad as uh, people make it out to be. I, I I find that the same kind of way the Holocaust deniers are. There's enough film of it. There is a um, extraordinarily famous picture. And again, uh, you have to have a strong stomach to see it of a Japanese soldier with one of the bayonets that I own. Um, the one that my father had the same model with a baby impaled on it. Oh my um, God. Cause wow. th- yeah. Uh, and it's on the internet. You can find it. Um, th- there has been, and Jason, you can maybe answer this better than I can. Cause you've lived in Japan and I have not. There has always been since the war, um, a slight whitewashing for lack of better word, of the history of the Second World War in Japan, and oh god, they were doing it, you know, I, I maybe be putting it too mild. <laughs> no. To be honest, oh um, well, when I when I started when I uh, when I taught there in two thousand three, one of the things that they tell you is you will not talk about World War Two mm-hmm. in any capacity. You will not teach lessons about it. You will not discuss it, and. Um, <laughs> Because, I mean, and it's similar to, I mean, Germany was the same way. You have, like, their history books, like, that they would teach in school. And then you would have, well, from, you know, the late 30s through the 40s, there's this kind of war that takes place. But then afterwards, you know, they kind of, there's kind of a glossing over of some of the stuff. But like I had said, I'd gone to the A-bomb museum. Mm -hmm. And they said, um, and on December 7th, 1941, and I had to read it twice. And I'll never, I wrote, I kept a journal when I was there of all this kind of stuff. And it says, after an attack on Pearl Harbor, Japan is thrust into the Pacific War. <laughs> That's how it's written. 
and it's it's a very and i'm kind of like well that's not exactly how it went but you know but then you start thinking well what's the purpose of the museum is it to say well Mm. we did this to ourselves or is it to you know but um we had these uh things called voice lessons which are like um open uh unstructured lessons that anybody can come in and sit uh because i was teaching english and so you yeah. had various levels of people that would come in. And so it was like my first or second voice lesson. And I went in and I had some ideas of some games to play. And I come in and everybody's sitting very, very quietly. And I said, well, hello, you know, how are we doing? And they're like, you're yeah, good. I said, so, uh, you know, I introduced myself and I said, we're here to um, to do, I guess, a voice lesson. And then I, I got to look it up because one of them said, um, turns to me and said, um, Basically, it was like, do you think that many Japanese were, or do you think, uh, was it Korea? I think they were saying Korea. Do you think that the Koreans wanted the Japanese in their country during World War II or something along those lines? And I was like, uh, uh, well, um, (laughs) is this a trick? Yeah, I'm thinking, danger, danger, old Robinson, you know? And I said, well, I, I, I'm not sure I can say. And he says, and the, the student, and he's like younger than I am. He says, well, uh, I think he said something like, well, let's find out. And then he turns to this older guy that's sitting next to him mm. and launches into it because the guy, it was, I mean, it, but the thing is what was so fascinating about the exchange is you had you had two different generations, mm-hmm. one that had been around during World War II and one that hadn't. Oh wow! And one was saying, you know, well, you know, the Koreans. I can't. I gotta. I have, I'll, I'll have to look it up because I was like, oh my god, I'm gonna get fired, and I just started <laughs> to stop. You're and Right. The occupation of Korea was particularly brutal. And uh, I mean, Jason, you know, it was the you'd mentioned the comfort stations the Japanese had set up. Um, They did the same thing in the Second World War with their own troops and 90 percent, a good proportion. I'll say 90 percent, but that's not right. A good proportion of the women who were on those comfort stations were imported from Korea. Um, oh yeah. Well, yeah. Man, so oh, kind of forcibly imported, we'll say. And well, you, I mean, you got to think though. Korea has been the battleground for the Japanese on a number of different occasions. Well, I it's mean, the Poland of the Asian continent for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, very much so. Seriously, <laughs> I mean, you got 1590s where the yeah. um, the the Chinese emperor says, "I'm going to instill upon uh, Hideyoshi Toyotomi the title of." king of japan and he's like um we already have an emperor and it was basically a showing of disrespect by the chinese and um so by saying if you accept that i'm giving you this title then you are submissive to us and toyotomi had helped to unite the country in civil war and you know was battle hardened and he was like okay well tell you what we're going to come and we're going to conquer china now and they didn't i mean they were not uh despite the fact that they're an island nation they didn't have a lot of uh strong seaworthy ships i mean you would have smaller you know boats and whatnot so the closest way that they could try and attack china was to go through korea yep 
and they <laughs> sliced through the Koreans. Uh, the Koreans, like, I mean, you had samurai just, I mean, butchering, and just, and the Koreans didn't know what to do, and so they're run. They're like parting the waves, like you know, you know, knife through butter, and they're just they're trying to run away, and then finally you have these. Um, Korean naval people that are saying, what are we doing? We, we're on our home turf. Let's go ahead. We have all these islands along the coast. Let's do a little bit of hide and seek, hit them and hide, hit them and hide. And it wound up cutting off the Japanese from their supply lines, which then forced them to all pull back. And, it, but, you know, that was just one instance, but Korea has been the, the oh, battleground yeah, for the Japanese a number of times. So it doesn't surprise me that they would also use them as kind of like whatever. But, well, um, but yeah, the, but to answer your question, to go back, yeah, the Japanese, um, the younger generations, especially with like uh, letters from Iwo Jima, mm -hmm. you know, the movie that came out, mm -hmm. um, they are being more um, exposed to their behavior because a lot of the Japanese wanted to forget that because oh, they yeah. felt a lot of shame. They feel mm -hmm. they felt like they had been led astray by uh, the military government that they had. And so, but yeah, I walk in and they all of a sudden start debating. It. I mean, there's like 20 other people in this room, women, men that are sitting there completely quiet. And I have no idea what to do. And the two of them are <laughs> like... I mean, the, the the old man is just kind of sitting there with his arms crossed, looking straight ahead, and the young man is like this kind of like antagonizing him about how horrible almost his generation was, and and it was just it was the most bizarre. Wow. But what was fascinating for me was that it had nothing to do with perceived American imperialism; it had nothing to do with us at all. No. It was an interior argument about, you know, the policies of that country during that time. Well, it's and interesting. It was a fascinating thing to watch. Yeah, it's interesting. If you talk about interior discussions in Japan in the 20s and 30s, there was a group who was not as, um, uh, they were called the uh, treaty faction, who were for the treaty and for reducing tensions. And as a matter of fact, Admiral Yamamoto, who planned the Pearl Harbor attack, his staff planned the Pearl Harbor attack, was one of those people. And the reason he was in command of the combined fleet at the time was during the 30s, the Japanese army officers, especially the younger ones, had a bad habit of executing or assassinating, really, anyone who disagreed with him. And he was one of those who disagreed with him. And they thought the safest place for him to be was on a ship. So they sent him to command the combined fleet and put kind of a guy in charge who wasn't going to make anybody angry of the Navy general staff, although Yamamoto never listened to him. And <laughs> he planned the Pearl Harbor attack. And then, of course, he shot down at the end of the Solomon Islands campaign and killed um, by USP-38. But um, he, uh, and there's a whole story around that, but we won't go there now. Um, but he was a very, he'd lived in, he'd lived in the United States. He'd gone to Harvard. He was naval attache here and his, um, semi-apocryphal i'm not sure you know some people say he said it some people said he said something like it but it was basically he told his bosses i can run wild for six months and then good luck for all of us because <laughs> the united states's industrial capacity is such we cannot keep it up we don't jason had mentioned it before the japanese did not have resources on their own island we have to ship everything in and we're going to get clobbered and that's pretty much what happened. You know, they ran wild for right. six months and then things turned 
and then the U.S. built submarines and fixed their torpedoes. And, you know, for all of the talk about the U-boat war against Britain, um, the United States submarine war against Japan was 100 times more effective. And at the end of the war, Japanese Navy, basically from about late 44 on, couldn't go anywhere because they had no fuel. Um, And they were converting what battleships they had left into floating anti-aircraft platforms in uh, Mm -hmm. Tokyo Bay and Cure Bay because they had no way to move their ships, no way to train their crews. Um, The Battle of Leyte Gulf, which is where my dad's story ends for the war, um, which is the largest naval battle probably in history, the Japanese were based in Borneo because that's the only place they could get their ship's fuel. And wow. even there, they had to use unrefined fuel that wrecked the engines. Mm. So when they launched their massive fleet assault on Lady Gulf from there, that's why. And um, once they lost the battle of Lady Gulf, which has three or four different battles in it, and you know, there's a surface battle, there's the famous um, one where the Yamato and a bunch of battleships run into our escort carriers, um, I don't know if you guys ever heard of that one, but they fight a bunch of tiny little escort carriers and destroyers. Our destroyers charge the Japanese battleships, sink four heavy cruisers for the Japanese, and force the battleships to run away. Um, they, uh, that's really the last gasp of Japanese Navy. And for the mm-hmm. rest of the war, they're just bombed to pieces by the ever-growing list of United States aircraft carriers, which I think ended at 25 or 30 fleet carriers at the end of the war, all Jeez. against the Japanese and all in big strike forces. Um, my dad is in the Lady Gulf campaign. He ends in Manila Bay in January of 45. His ship is trying to rescue another ship and hits a mine. Oh, and geez. the Ratford has a 30 by 20 hole blown in it. Oh. Um, basically where his crew compartment was. And he jokes that, um, and he had been home once or twice during the war. This is not, he was gone for the whole time. You know, they bring ships in for refits and stuff. Um, <laughs> but he said everything that he had at that time was gone. He had the clothes on his back because oh, his crew quarters were gone and they drug the ship back to the United States for repairs. He got off the ship and was sent to a radar controlled gunfire school because at that point, the kamikazes were starting mm. and yeah. um, they needed a way to stop them. And they were just putting, there's a joke that the United States fully embraces the second amendment at the end of the second world war, because every conceivable space on the United States ship is crammed with guns. And if you look at some of the battleships <laughs> and carriers, they're carrying 100 and 150 anti-aircraft guns um, because they're trying to shoot down the kamikazes. Oh, yeah, and, um, you know, that's where his war ends. He was in, actually, he was at home in New York City when the war ended. Um, and that oh, was wow. how he ends the war. So, well, um, let me um, uh, let me ask one more thing because uh, sure. this this has all been, I mean, fantastic. I mean, that's this is yeah. guys. This is one of the reasons why all of a sudden I started going. Well, you know, this history stuff isn't so stupid. You know, <laughs> I mean, because Roger would have these stories and talk to us about this kind of stuff. But um, I am curious of all the stories about uh, his. Um, his mm-hmm. participation in World War II. What is the one that you think, like, what's what's one story that he says that kind of stands out to you um, for whatever reason, and, and why does it stand out to you? What, what well, I'll give two examples. One, certainly, um, Pearl Harbor and the Battle of Kula Gulf were the two big moments for him during the war, I think. Um, you know, not that he was even at Pearl Harbor at the time, but hearing that, the shock of it, 
the oh my god we're a lone cruiser and there are six japanese aircraft carriers somewhere around here oh my gosh <laughs> and they've just sank the entire pacific fleet oh my gosh um you know he talked extensively with me about how he thought they were all going to be dead in a week um mm. but they weren't that was not you know that didn't happen thank god um cooler golf obviously because they won the presidential unit citation and that leads into i was blessed my father lived a long life and uh we got to go to the 50th reunion of the USS Ratford crew in Ohio. And uh, oh, so they had oh. all the old guys. It was like 1993, 1992 or 93. I can't remember what it was. 1992. And we went there and there were all the survivors. There were probably 60, 70 guys left of the crew of 3350 who came to the, the, uh, the reunion. And they're all sitting around and it was like they'd never been apart. They were so close. They hadn't talked to each other. This was before the internet and communication was as easy as it is now. <laughs> a lot of these guys hadn't seen them, you know, in 30, 40 years. And it was like they'd never left each other's company. Wow. And um, in the middle of this, one of the guy who kind of organized it was a guy named Van Scott, who was another enlisted man. And he was very, you know, into the ship's history and all this more so than most of the others. And uh, he had a, a recording that he played. And it was the ship's captain at the time of Kula Golf, a guy named Rosemer, Commander Rosemer. And he, when they came home for the refit after that, he was detached from the ship and the captain was put on. Well, all the enlisted men, of course, stayed with the ship and went back out to New Guinea and the Solomons. Well, this guy was sent on, was given the Navy Cross and sent on a bond tour. And this was a recording of this guy um, on NBC Chicago radio giving an interview. And he was with Rita Hayworth and I think Betty Grable doing this and wow they're listening to this and they'd never heard it because they were at sea they never knew this guy you know they'd heard he won the navy cross you know the commanders always give each other medals so what um but <laughs> that was kind of their attitude with it but we're gonna you know they didn't know this guy was getting you know champagne and he's with betty grable and rita hayworth and all these movie actresses that they all thought was you know good looking girls um they uh, you know, and they had like a slideshow going with this on a screen. And I suddenly noticed the slideshow being pelted with dinner rolls. <laughs> <laughs> All these old guys in the room are, you son of a biscuit. Da -da 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 -da. We're using that word either. And they're chucking biscuits and rolls at the screen. You son of a so-and-so. You're hanging out with Betty Grable and Rita Hayworth. And we're getting our rear end shot off in the Solomon Islands. <laughs> what the, where the heck's our, you know. And I think that to me, it was, I think that's been my favorite moment of it all because it just showed the personal kind of connection to the history. It showed the, the way people, you don't get the full story if you just, you know, there are three elements of military history. There's a tactical, strategic, and the operational. And the guys are always on the tactical end, don't always get the other two sections. And right. this was part of that. And it was just so interesting to see all of these guys so angry get this captain who've been dead for 30 years you know i mean this you know these guys were all in their 70s and 80s and they're pelting that's the awesome. screen with dinner rolls that's so awesome. it was that was just that was kind of the nicest moment of it um well i can I, imagine I to, to turn from when they all come in and they're all night you know happy to see each other and whatever and probably the first thing they're saying is remember sydney Melbourne, yeah. wink, wink, you know, right? Yeah. There was a, um, each other and stuff. 
One of the but, guys um, who was my dad's good friend talked about how they shacked up with two women in San Diego for three weeks oh, in a trailer. Boy. And my dad was trying to change the subject because I'm sitting there. You know, I'm in my 20s at this point. I'm like, yeah, okay, dad, I get it. You know, you still have some wild oats. Um, but he's like, you know, don't tell your mother. And I'm like, I'm not going to tell mom. What the, you know, come on. Like, and what's awesome. worse is mom was like three at the time. I mean, what's the worst about it? There's stuff like that. Um, it's just remarkable stories you hear. We joke with my father that the first 48 years of his life, he was the most interesting man in the world. And the last 48 years of his life, he was the most boring. Um, <laughs> because after he got out of the Navy in 46, he was in the Merchant Marine for a while, um, where, according to him, he nearly capsized a tanker in a storm. Um, <laughs> got oh, out nice. of the Merchant Marine, got, went back to school with the GI Bill, was one of the success stories. I mean, this is a guy who did not graduate high school. Um, mm. Went to University of Wisconsin, was a geolo geologist, worked for the Smithsonian Institute in the invertebrate um, mollusk department for paleontology for a number of years, um, hunted dinosaur bones and uranium for the United States government in the West Coast, um, and then worked for Department of Naval Oceanography for the rest of his career. There's a mountain named after him underwater near Massachusetts, Mount Justice. And um, wow. really cool. There's a sea mount named after him. And, you know, that's what, you know, they found so many mountains, they were naming them after each other because we've run out of names. <laughs> Um, and then, you know, he did the last 20 years of his career with the United States Navy Oceanographic Office doing stuff that he couldn't talk about. Um, I still remember he left when I was a little boy because one of the U.S. submarines sank and he had to help go find it. And then that was the Scorpion or the Thresher, and I can't remember which one it was. Mm -hmm. And then there was um, the last story I'll, I really remember my father telling of sort of this life before he met my mother was uh she was talking about when she was in her early 20s she moved to dc and the cuban missile crisis was happening and this is over thanksgiving dinner and we're all sitting there and you know sharing a glass of wine and talking we looked at dad mm -hmm. and said well, who are you you know you were in dc what were you doing and he's swirling the wine glass in thinking and we're th thinking uh -oh. <laughs> shacking up with a chick in a trailer out in <laughs> i'm wondering if that's what's coming um but what was coming was he said kind of said well i guess i can tell you now and oh my God. he was so his job was he did all the mappings for us submarines so ballistic missile subs regular subs the whole nine yards the original maps were him and his department and so when he tried to go to hungary in the early 90s to visit his homeland they wouldn't let him go for five or six years because he still knew too much even though he'd been retired since 1980 wow. um, holy cow holy so cow. he's swirling this glass of wine and he finally says i was on a, a fishing trawler off the coast of cuba mapping it for the potential invasion wow, wow. Well, there you go and wow. that was like okay <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I played D&D last I mean, night. Does this count? I don't know. That's, hey, Jesus. That, that's, that's, I, I don't know which one would have been more enthralling, the shacking up in a trailer or, you know, off the coast of Cuba. It's it's really, you know, it's, a, it's neck and neck right there. Yeah, I certainly didn't get enough information about the shacking up other than it was a blonde and a redhead. And that was really <laughs> oh. all I heard. So... <laughs> <laughs> well roger i really wow. really uh am glad that uh uh you this is your your third attempt in the yes. um in the um contest and i'm so glad that you won 
Um, there's so much. I I would love to have you come back on yeah, to I'd be able to. to talk about some World War II stuff when we. Yeah, uh, I'd absolutely love yeah. to. Um, you know, Europe, Pacific, Russia, whatever. Just let me know. I've studied this pretty much my whole life, and um, wow, I'm still finding out new stuff about it every day. Uh, you know, things <laughs> don't change as you said, but history moves, and that's one of the fascinating parts about it. So it's really fun. Absolutely. Well, I uh, really and appreciate you uh, coming on board and, you know, and sharing your information. I've had a great time. Thank you, guys. Oh, it's been a blast. No, Absolutely been a pleasure. Right here. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. And oh. uh, that little D&D uh, reference that you threw in. <laughs> back when we were in college, we would oh, play God. all kinds of like, role-playing, like Dungeons and & Dragons and Marvel superheroes and that kind of stuff. <laughs> yes, at the were. time in Cullowee, there wasn't a whole lot left to do. Yeah, there was no cable um, at that point. Um, <laughs> but um, it's obviously changed now. It's oh, my God. Yeah. How much stuff is up there now. But yeah, we, so, Jason, uh, do you remember were, how far we'd get in those games? We oh, only no, got to one a, spot those, part and stop. Yeah, it'd be a bar fight at the beginning, yeah. and we torched the entire place, and everybody would go home at that point because yeah. it was It was late, 2 in the morning, yeah. Hatfield. We did one, uh, one that I think everyone might appreciate. We were... Um, we played one called uh, top, was it Top Secret? Yeah, it was Top it was Secret. Called? That's what it was. Yeah, where you you basically are creating like secret agents. So uh, like I would always be like someone with some sort of Japanese intelligence agency and all these kind of stuff. And I you just remember you. that we um, were needing to get to some place, and we were all dressed as Spetsnaz, and we kid we 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 stole a minivan. minivan to get to where it was that's the kind of stuff that we would yeah that, that's how our games always would you know yeah. we literally broke into a dealership in this game and stole a volkswagen dressed up as spetsnaz and then what was funny was no i don't remember i i remember that the uh the guy who was running the game that game in a star trek game was one of your former roommates and oh, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, he uh, he was always trying to play them so straight into the, you know, absolute realism. And I think he gave us the Volkswagen minivan because he tr was trying to stop us from doing it. And we were just like, oh, yeah, we'll take the boy. minivan and knock the windows out and oh, shoot the guns boy. out of them. What the heck? Yeah, um, he, was, he was a slave to the process. Like, you yeah. know, you would have to... He didn't have, you know, he wouldn't have as much fun with it. He was very much, you know, like a... a well, a the Star Trek game, I remember the Star Trek game because there was some, you know, none of us knew Star Trek, and we were just oh. doing it to make him happy. And we were we were doing something in the tricorder, I, I think it's called. Science, and I was a science officer, and I had to yeah. roll to make sure that I knew how to use the equipment that yeah, I'm that was to use. <laughs> And I failed the role, and it was like, oh, you failed. You don't know what you're doing. I'm like, I'm the science officer, for crying out loud. What is this? You know, The other one, he would look at you and go, so you're using the tricorder. What buttons are you using? And I'd look at him and like, I don't know. What What are you talking about? It's, it's a yeah. movie. So now my nerd level has just, you know, increased yeah. Sorry. Uh, incrementally. So, But anyway, yeah, we were so. On but, that uh, well, thank you so much again thank for coming guys. on. And, um, um uh, Rude, you want to like go ahead and sign us off? Yeah, sure. Uh, all right. So for the History Bros, I am Jason Rude, also known as Corn, because you know Corn. Uh, thank you again to our special guest, Roger Justice. Thank you again. Seriously, this has been a blast. Thank yep. you. And uh, it, guys, it was a lot of fun. Absolutely. And then, of course, to my far right, I've got uh, Jason Hatfield, and uh, as I like to say, beneath me, we've got. Mm. Brian Geldmacher. Mm. 
But the truth of the matter is, History Bros here signing off for the night. We'll talk to you again soon. See ya. Peace out. Deuces.